Stay in the know this summer with a membership to the DSR Network. For more than five years, Deep State Radio has been on top of all the key foreign policy and national security stories impacting the world. We're grateful to our members who make all of this possible and hope that you will consider supporting our work by becoming a member. Members get access to our expanded offering of exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to participate in discussions via our member Slack community, our weekly member briefings, and our DSR Daily Brief newsletter delivered to your inbox each evening. Members also receive all of our content via private member feed that you can add to your podcast app of choice. Help us celebrate our five years together by becoming a member. Join now for just $5 per month or $50 per year. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. Thank you very much. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from Cambridge, Massachusetts. We are joined today by Ed Luce of the Financial Times, who looks like he's coming to us from Washington, D.C. Is that true, Ed? It's true, I'm afraid. Well, you've been gallivanting about this summer, so you should visit your home periodically. Also joined by Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law Center, who's also in what vicinity, the Washington vicinity? Alexandria, Virginia. Beautiful Alexandria, Virginia. And we are joined by the always lovely O. Serencion, who is one of the uh, leading nuclear experts that we know, often published author and commentator, who is maybe in Washington. Where are you, Joe? I am. I'm just outside Washington in Tacoma Park, Maryland, about 180 degrees around the circle from Rosa. So the you two are outside the Beltway. Are you outside the Beltway, Rosa, or are you still inside the Beltway? Uh, both Rosa and I are inside the Beltway. Both Alexandria and Tacoma Park are inside. Outside the district. Yeah, outside the district, yes. Um, okay. So there's a lot to talk about this week, and uh, I want to start in a place we don't normally talk about things on this podcast. Usually it's our Thursday province, and that is an aspect of domestic politics, I guess, of domestic law enforcement. Because I want to talk a little bit about the national security implications of the recent visit of the Department of Justice and the FBI to Mar-a-Lago and the uh, subsequent revelation that they brought back a bunch of classified materials and the subsequent assurance by the Trump team that the, the president had magically declassified all of those things and that that somehow mattered. And I just would like everybody's reaction to this chapter, whether you think it's significant or whether it is legal small ball. What do you say, Joe? 
I think it is significant. Overall, I've seen many, many experts argue that the declassified or declassified nature of the documents doesn't matter in the technical implementation of the laws. The Espionage Act, for example, dates back to 1917 before we had a classification structure. So it doesn't reference government documents being classified or non-classified. So technically it doesn't matter. But politically and almost sort of in the, in the Justice Department's thinking about the case, it does matter. If, in fact, Trump could make the case that none of these documents were classified, that he had magically sprinkled declassification dust over them, and they were all now declassified, it would stay the Justice Department's hand on how, how hard they go in pushing the case. That, so technically, there is, it does matter. I think sort of politically, or structurally, you might say, it doesn't matter because what you basically have here is Trump once again treating the presidency as if it was a CEO position that he created, that it was his, that all of this was his, that the staff was his, the Justice Department is his, the generals should be his generals, the documents are his documents, and all this other stuff is just bureaucratic nonsense and has nothing to do with governance or the rule of law, and smashing right through these norms and, uh, and and established guidelines as if they, they don't apply to him and he's trying to get away with it. And as far as the Republican Party is concerned, they side with him. He has gotten away with it in the Republican Party. They no longer care what Donald Trump does. They will support anything he says, anything he, he does, apparently without limit. Yeah, apparently without limit, Rosa, the Republican Party. I saw a thing today that said Donald Trump's rating relative to other potential Republican candidates went up 10 points as a result of the FBI rating his house, discovering classified documents there. Maybe that's not surprising, but what, what is your reaction to all this? It is so strange. We all remember Donald Trump saying he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and his, his supporters would not turn away from him. And, you know, it turns out he's basically right. I do find it just bizarre of all the unlikely champions of the marginalized feeling white working class and white rural middle class to have a guy who talk about being born with a silver spoon in your mouth, um, rich, spoiled New Yorker, married multiple times, personal life, uh, an embarrassment, tabloid fodder for years known as basically a con man for him to become the guy who so many Americans seem to think is is sticking up for them or somehow stands for the little guy against the feds is, is truly bizarre to me. I mean, I really don't understand it. I mean, I, you know, I look at Trump and I and I think, how can anybody look at him and not see what I see, which is a a con man, you know, a con man who's not very smart and basically a horrible human being. And completely irresponsible, but it's 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 mysterious and depressing. I, I it's just impossible to know what impact this will have. It'll be interesting to see what happens today in the various primaries that are taking place today as we're recording. Obviously, that may give us a little bit of a sense of which way the winds are blowing. But you know, I I mean, I think Joe's I think Joe's right. You know, the the debate about well, can he declassify these is sort of misses the point in a kind of a deep sense. You know, the point is presidents don't do that. They don't do that because that's an irresponsible way to act. 
whether it's a criminal way to act, whether it actually endangered American national security remains to be seen and depends in the first case on various technical questions. But it really doesn't matter. You know, who does that? It's like that. I sort of feel like Donald Trump is like every the walking id for a lot of Americans, you know, that sort of he misbehaves in ways that they fantasize about misbehaving, but can't actually get away with. And that there's something that appeals to people about watching this guy just trample every single rule, trample every single norm. But I I find it totally baffling. Speaking of the walking id, the uh, Arizona candidate, uh, Carrie Lake, said that Trump's advantage was his BDE. How do you feel about that, Ed? You you ask me to spell out BDE? (laughs) (laughs) Are you you ducking that one, David? No, Carrie Lake wants you to ask your kids BDE. (laughs) This this is was ask your kids, she said. Oh, great. Let's have a conversation about BDE with your 10-year-old and 12-year-old. Good idea. Yeah, just such a perfect opportunity to broach this necessary topic. BDE, well, that kind of um, sums it up. I mean, if tonight's, I guess some people will be listening to this after Tuesday night's primaries, but, and therefore I might be embarrassed by predicting that Sarah Palin is going to do well and Liz Cheney is not. And uh, that ought to tell you everything you need to know about the pro BDE wing of the GOP and how well it's doing. You know, I'm, I'm at a loss to add really anything insightful to what Rosa and Joe have said, other than once you've got past all the technicalities of what Trump may or may not have breached, it's anybody's guess what his motive was. It could be as trivial as, well, I was the president, as Joe was saying, it's mine. All mine. It's the corporate papers of of the Trump organization, except they happen to be nuclear secrets. So it could be simply just the five-year-old's impulse. This is mine. Or it could be something very nefarious, which is, look, here's some leverage or some something monetizable. Or he definitely wasn't t- taking documents as material for his memoirs. I mean, we can even for his ghostwritten memoirs, we can be sure of that. But what what really strikes me is just how massive the spectrum is from utterly sort of childish tantrum level to really sort of m- mortally wounding to national security level. And it could be anything on that spectrum that motivates motivated Trump to take these documents and then refuse to give them back. Well, uh, it couldn't really be anything because one possibility would be that he would take them home and pour over them because he loves to read about policy and uh, is fascinated in the the workings of the government and wants to do better the next time. Right. It's probably not yeah. that one. It's not that one. And it's not prepping for his memoirs. Um, it's not pre- right. It's you know. He doesn't chat about the nuclear triad over dinner to Melania either. Um, so we can be sure of that. Sorry, Joe, you had your well, If we could just speculate a little bit, because, again, we don't know for sure. But why would he take nuclear related documents? Why would he want to keep these? Well, it's not for knowledge. It's not because he thought this was critical to his understanding of national security. It's probably because he thought there was some monetary benefit to doing this. I mean, this is what motivates Trump in, in, in many of the things that he does. And when you think about that, there are two nations where Trump has a financial interests, a political ties, maybe psychological ties that would be interested in U.S. nuclear documents. And those are Russia and Saudi Arabia. So my operating hypothesis is that that's what these documents pertain to documents that would be of interest 
and possibly could be of yield financial benefit to Trump by supplying these kinds of documents either directly or by reference to one of those two nations that he has long-standing ties with. That's where I'd be looking. I think that's a possibility. But Rosa, the other possibility is that Trump actually has LDE. And, you know, he likes to show off to compensate for just how L his LDE is. Don't (laughs) don't you think? Well, yes. I mean, I think that anybody who's got as much braggadocio as Donald Trump, you know, there's some tiny, tiny little ego, little Mm -hmm. sense of self-esteem and tiny, tiny lots of things in there, you know because other people don't need to act this way. But, and I I don't think that's inconsistent with going back to the just, he does it because he wants to, you know, it's the old, it's, it's, it's grab him by the pussy. When you're a star, you can do whatever you want. You know, that's just Trump's rule in life is I get to do what I, what I feel like doing right this second, screw Joe Biden. It's all mine. I want them. I'm taking them. I, I, you know, Joe, I, yes, there absolutely are more nefarious possibilities, um, you know, secret mm-hmm. plans to monetize them, secret plans to aid and abet America's enemies. My money would be on, it's as simple as I'm five years old, I do what I want and screw everybody else without a whole lot more thought than that. That being said, I think I think there is another sinister theory, I suppose, which which is not about Trump having come up with some elaborate plan to make money or or give secrets to our enemies or anything, which is just that his inner circle thought to themselves, I bet we can find some way in the future to make use of these documents in a way that will, you know, embarrass Joe Biden or look bad somehow or will make Trump look good. You know, that and that and if that involves cozying up to our enemies as part of that, that's fine. Uh, so I, I just don't I really don't credit Trump with enough ability to plan in advance or enough sophistication to have any truly nefarious plan of his own, frankly. I think it's all impulse. Yeah, so let's go back to this one other question, then I'll move on from this. But Ed, one of the most astonishing aspects of this is the unanimity of the Republican Party in defending Trump. That, you know, leaders from across the party have said, the FBI should be defunded, that the Department of Justice should be investigated, that Merrick Garland should be impeached, that it's outrageous that they would invest, you know, look into this thing. Even with each passing level of revelations that suggest that Trump did something that would throw, if any of you guys did it, you'd end up in the slammer instantaneously, Right. You know, reality winner took one page of a document, ended up getting, what, four or five years in jail. And I'm not defending her or criticizing her. I'm just saying that's an example. But, you know, the Republican Party, when I was a little boy in a covered wagon going across America, they were sort of known as a national security party. And here it's like, who cares about national security? Who cares about these? You know, you have Ron Johnson going. Hey, Mar-a-Lago seems like a pretty safe place, even though the spies are arrested there, you know, and there's no security. The Republican Party just doesn't seem to care anymore. They didn't care about Russia. They didn't care about selling out the country. Now they don't seem to care about this. Is this real damaging to them? I mean, it's obviously damaging to the country. Or do they get it? Do the American people in their base really not care about this stuff? 
Excuse me. I mean, one of the best t- selling T-shirts and badges at Trump rallies is I'd rather be Russian than Democrat. And it's an interesting thought experiment. Interesting if, twist on better dead than red. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's an interesting thought experiment, you know, to follow what Joe was saying, that if this were the worst case, you know, seditious scenario of Trump actually thinking he can monetize some of the nuclear secrets, how it is that Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio would, would react then. When January the 6th happened, all of these people, all of them condemned what happened, described it as you know a terrorist attack on Capitol Hill and so forth. For a week or two afterwards, all of them had um, what I would think of as a fairly mainstream commonsensical reaction to the assault on Capitol Hill. There wasn't one minute of that after the the Trump publicized the the search of Mar-a-Lago. Not one minute. They fell behind his, this is a politically motivated witch hunt, this is the Gestapo, and all the other sort of wild darts he he threw at the darts board in the days afterwards. There was not one, one, one moment's pause. So weirdly, it's getting more Trumpian by the second. What motivates them? Liz Cheney is a 93% voting record with Trump. You know, there isn't a there isn't a new weapons system she's voted against, a tax cut she hasn't voted for, an abortion she hasn't opposed. She's as stars and stripes as you get. And yet she's she's going to be ejected. So what is conservatism now? What is yeah. republicanism? It's, it's not a about cult. ideology, clearly. It's, it's not it's about ideology cult. anymore. It's a cult. This is how a cult behaves. This is how the sole party in an autocracy behaves. It's, it's, not, it's not how a party in, in a party democracy behaves. And, and there is no precedent for it, you know, unless you're talking about very splinter parties like the, the Communist Party of, of past decades in the West. There is no precedent for this kind of cultist total obedience to the leader. Can I just add something here? Because I do think this week, the, the reaction of the Republican Party after the raid marks a new stage in the transformation of the Republican Party into a real authoritarian party. All the signs have been there, and we've all read the articles about the signs of you know, fascism, how fascism develops in a country. But one of the elements that's been missing has been the use or threat of violence to enforce the, the, the party's agenda or the, the leader's agenda. We saw it in January 6th, but as Ed pointed out, the party as a whole reacted negatively to that, at least for a couple of weeks. They didn't react negatively to this. And you saw the embrace of violence, at least rhetorically. And we saw the implementation of this with two cases of basically kamikaze attacks on on institutional structures, the attack on the FBI and the attack on the Capitol, where people were ready to sacrifice their lives. And in the case of the Capitol assault, did sacrifice their lives, ramming a car into the Capitol, then, then the guy shooting himself. This is a new level, and the embrace of violence, the talk of war. David, you and I had a Twitter exchange about this. Not an actual war, but the justification of war, of, of this being attack on Trump. We had to defend him about the, the Trump being the victim of this, and we had to all rise up. This is a new dangerous phase, and I'm afraid this, we're still in it. We're seeing it ascend. There's no sign that this is going to level off or that the Republican Party as a whole is going to retrench from their embrace of violent dissent against the government. You know, Rosa, the Twitter exchange I had with Joe, he had thoughtfully cited an article and was talking about this issue of war. 
And I, of course, sort of did the Twitter thing, which was, you know, I sort of skipped over the article and made the point I wanted to make, anyway, <laughs> um, which is, you know, there's a lot of this talk about civil war in the U.S., but there's not going to be a civil war. Most of these people are couch potatoes. There are a few thousand of them who are nuts. They can cause a lot of damage. Let's call them for what they are, extremists, terrorists, and, and identify that threat. But the right, you know, Trump seems to think the right can rise up and bend the U.S. government to its will. And, you know, that can't happen, can it? Yes and no, or no and yes. I mean, I mean, I, and we've talked about this a little bit on previous episodes. I, I think it's quite clear that the majority, the very, very large majority of Americans do not want political violence. Um, it's quite clear that the very large majority of political of Americans would be dismayed and appalled by increasing political and are dismayed and appalled. It's quite clear that the majority of Americans are dismayed by the increasing partisanship alone. I don't think the support most Republicans have for Trump is deep enough that people would, in fact, say, OK, I'm taking my gun and I'm putting my life on the line and I'm going to you know, join the local Trump militia and march on Washington with my gun. I, you know, I think that's absolutely correct. The, at the same time, that doesn't give me that much comfort because as, as we know from comparatively country after country, you don't need to have widespread support to start an insurgency that can be extremely effective and can intimidate everybody else into not necessarily actively participating, but going along, you know, not doing anything to stop it. You can have a pretty tiny group of people. And if they are ruthless enough and organized enough and well-funded enough, you know, they can cause real calamities, political calamities, because there's so much about, I mean, not to <laughs> get too highfalutin, right? There's so much about civilization altogether that depends on everybody's voluntary compliance. And even when we think about the level of security at federal buildings, you know, the White House, the Capitol, it's actually not that great, right? It's, it's more than we wish it had to be, but it's not that great. We've seen over and over People can get to those places if they try hard enough. And even bozos, even crazy individual bozos can get frighteningly close, right? And, you know, what would happen if, if you know, a thousand very well-armed people, you know, suddenly launched a raid on the White House, the Capitol, whatever? I don't think you need more. I don't think you need that many, you know, maybe not a thousand, maybe you need 10,000, right? But, but you don't need a hundred million. You know, you just need a small well-trained, well-armed group of fanatics. And what history also tells us is that most people, even though they may not support it, they're not going to do anything about it, you know, unless they, because they're scared, they're going to go along to get along. And if they feel frightened or intimidated, whatever, you know, they're not going to stand in the way. So, so I, it gives me comfort on a sort of psychological level to feel like, okay, there are not that many Americans that are truly crazy and violent, but it doesn't actually give me that much comfort when it comes to thinking about possible calamities in this country, because I, I think you, you don't need a lot of people. And we have a couple of minutes before our little mini break that we take in the middle of the episode. I'm, I'm just wondering what you think of this. You've been traveling around outside the country in the past few weeks. And when I travel outside the country or talk to people outside the country, one of the questions that I've gotten more frequently in the past year than I've ever gotten is, could there be a civil war? Could the United States come apart at the seams? Is it on the verge of breaking? Did you get the question? How do you answer it? Yeah, that, that question does arise more. I mean, 
you know, I think of myself as fairly pessimistic or sort of flinty eyed about um, America's prospects. But when I'm in Europe, I, I could almost. You know, that when you said you were fairly pessimistic, Rosa smiled. You call that pessimism. <laughs> <laughs> but well, uh, you know, even Rosa, you know, in, in certain European conversational situations I've been in recently might might feel almost Panglossian. There's deep skepticism about America, which is a problem and a subject all of itself. It's a sort of life force all of itself across the Atlantic and in other parts of the world. But I was thinking of, you know, in terms of picking up on what Rosa just said, if Gallup had been polling in France in, in, in 1789, it wouldn't have found strong support for the guillotine or Robespierre. If it had been polling in Moscow and Petersburg in 1917, it wouldn't have found a Bolshevik majority nor for the mullahs in 1978 in Iran. It's always small minorities of vanguards, as Lenin calls them, who bring about violent change. So I don't think that's as much comfort to me as it might be to you, Rose, although, I, I mean, you did then qualify your point. Um, no, no, it's no comfort to me at all. It's just my pessimistic. It doesn't take a lot of people. No, that's fair enough. But if we're talking about small minorities changing things, it's five people on the Supreme Court I'm most worried about, maybe six, maybe five, depending on the vote and the day, and what they're capable of. And particularly, you know, if it comes to slightly more bona fide, slightly more plausible looking electoral disputes in 2024 that go up to the Supreme Court, that's what worries me most. And that's not the sort of conventional civil war situation, but it's the kind of, it's the kind of scenario that could, that could lead to a, a much more dramatic situation. Well, we have to keep talking about this because this is a big issue. It is an international issue. It is a national security issue. It's not just a political issue. For those of you in the public, general public, who are listening to this for free, great. We welcome you. But if you want to listen to the rest of the podcast, you need to be a member. We've uh, got a lot of great bonus content for our members. This would be a great time to go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership and commit to, I think it's five bucks a month to help support what we're doing. Membership has been growing steadily throughout this year. It's been our best year ever by far, by far. And we want to hopefully keep it growing because I think the next couple of years are going to be absolutely critical to have this kind of insight uh, as we go through the midterms and then head into the 2024 elections. And so we hope you will join us and become a member. Don't put it off. Do it now. That would be great. And then you can listen to the rest of this. For those of you in the general public who have not done that, we'll uh, see you again soon sometime. For those of you who are members or about to become them, we'll be right back.